Hello, my name is Shireen Jordan and welcome to Tea and Tonic. This podcast is about giving my guests from all different creative industries the chance to tell us about how they got to where they are today, while we both sip a tea or perhaps something a bit stronger with a tonic. It's a chance for those affected by the impact of lockdown, the opportunity to chat, because talking is, as the saying goes, just the tonic. I hope you enjoy it with a beverage in hand. It's Saturday, October the 24th, 2020, and my guest today is actor, singer, comedian, director and writer Gary Wilmot, MBE. Gary started off doing impressions and a chance encounter in Benidorm in 1976 put him on the path of new faces, which launched his career, and he went on to win. He performed on the variety circuit, touring pubs and social clubs, doing summer seasons before he made his West End debut as the lead in musical Me and My Girl at the Adelphi Theatre in 1989. In 1994, he hosted Showstoppers, and Gary has gone on to perform in dozens of shows, including Carmen Jones, Copacabana, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Wind in the Willows, Chicago, Oklahoma, Oliver, Half a Sixpence, Radio Times, Flowers for Mrs Harris, not to mention the UK's biggest pantos at the Palladium, and this year in Prince of Egypt at the Dominion. Gary has also been writing his screenplay, Sweet Lorraine, and in 2018 he was awarded an MBE for his services to drama and charity. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Gary Wilmot. Hello, how are you? All right. I'm good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. I've got my phone on, I should just t- turn it off for you. <laughs> Gary, I, I'm very excited to be talking to you today. Before we begin, what beverage do you have? Well, I've got myself a cup of coffee. I do drink tea, but yeah. occasionally coffee's just the trick. Okay. So, yeah, I've got a cup of coffee. Is that okay? Absolutely, absolutely. Anything goes. And I... <laughs> And I've got. I should have had a bit of a uh, put, put some whiskey in or something, but we're having we're having dry October, sober October. Oh, are you? Well, oh, good, good for you. Well, I've just got a normal tea, so cheers. <laughs> Gary, you have been in this industry now for decades, and I say that with admiration and respect. Did you always know that this is what you wanted to do as a child? Were there the opportunities then that there seem to be now for young people getting into the business? Um, I don't know if I want to do it now. Um, it's, it's a funny old thing, really. I, I fell into it. I fell, absolutely fell into it. And, um, it, it's a little bit, a little bit of an odd story, but I was always one for messing about. I played lots of sport when I was a, a teenager and, um, and the, the dressing room is a great breeding ground for comedy and comedians. And, uh, and I used to do uh, impressions of, you know, all the normal, they weren't really my impressions. They were Mike Yarwood, who was the big impressionist on TV at the time. They were his impressions really, but all, everyone did them. And they were like Michael Crawford and uh, Harold Wilson, the prime minister. And, uh, but I did have a couple of unique ones and Norman Wisdom was a, a big one for me, as was uh, Stevie Wonder and Randy Crawford. And, and so I kind of rose to notoriety if that's the right expression, um, doing those kind of impressions. But no, I, I didn't really want to, to do this. My father was in the industry. Uh, he died when I was very young. He was a, a singer in a group called the Southlanders. He came over on the Windrush. And, um, and they sang a song called I Am A Mole And I Live In A Hole, which a lot of people might remember, but um, older people anyway. Uh, and But he died when I was very young. And those direct influence on me coming into the business but I went over to Spain in 1976 with a load of mates you know some people take a gap year and go to India and places like that no we went to Benidorm 
uh, and uh, it's all relative. <laughs> uh, and, and out there, I met a guy who thought I was really funny, and he was only one of the lads. But when we got back to England, he made it his business to go about trying to find me an agent. So he went to somebody and got a card and gave it to me and said, phone him, phone him. Uh, the reason I mentioned my father is because I knew that show business was a bit more than just that half an hour we saw Des O'Connor or Val Dunican on the television. There was a lot more to it than that. So I was a bit reluctant, but I made this phone call and, and he said, you know, do you have an act? I said, no, I've no idea. And he put me in contact with a guy who was giving tuition at that time, a man called Alan Clive, who was one of the regulars on a, an impressionist program called Who Do You Do? Uh, and he showed me the ropes. He was my uh, manager for, for about a year and a half, put me together with a girl called Judy King. And, uh, and we went on to New Faces and won that and was on it three times. And yeah, that was it really. And then I was in the business. Amazing. It's, a it's a difficult business to get out of <laughs> because it's an attractive gig maybe two months down the road. So you go, I'll do that. So you have to try and keep going until you get that good gig. And uh, I've been very lucky, very fortunate. And, and was that your approach along the way? Oh, well, you know, might, might, might step out of this, see what happens. And then something else came along after that and after that and it, and it just spiralled. Yeah, I, all the time I was thinking, someone will find me out. Don't worry, they'll find me out and they'll kick me out. And, um, but no, it just went from strength to strength. I started doing pubs in and around London and then one or two social clubs. Um, then further afield in Wales, I mean, back then, social clubs were huge. Labour and Conservative clubs were massive. Mm -hmm. And um, so I would go to Scotland for three weeks and do all the clubs up there and the, the North East for another three weeks and then three weeks down in South Wales. Gosh. And then a summer season came along in the form of uh, a show at the Westcliff Theatre in Clacton. And, um, uh, and then the kind of was in it, really. That was it. There's no, no turning back. That's quite incredible. So it all happened slightly by fluke, be, you know, by you going to Benidorm and yeah. meeting that person that was perhaps pivotal in chucking you on the right path. It's funny because it, in life you never know who's going to affect you. It can be somebody who just makes a comment at the stage door. Um, mm. That happens to me quite a bit. You know, they'll, they'll say something that and that's, on the face of it seems innocuous, but it sticks in my head. It might be a comment on the performance or why I did something and I would go away and it would really stay with me and I go oh I think I know why they did that I think I know why they said that and um yeah I, I, uh, so I just it kind of affects you but when I met this guy Stephen Smith his name was uh when I met him he um he kind of took a liking to me he was, as I say he was only one of the lads but you know and he came into my life and then as soon as I was in show business I think I've seen him twice since right. that was it. but it is strange how people come into your life and and, uh, and and change your direction. And you say that um, you had some training. You met this person who gave you some lessons. Yeah, it was at his house in Fry and Barnet, and uh, and I would go over there and I'd pay my fiver, I think it was, and um, and that was it. I, I, you know, he, he would teach me for an hour, and then I would go away. And it was quite a schlep over to Fry and Barnet. I was I was living in South London at that time, and um, yeah, so it was it was quite a schlep. But I did it, and. Uh, I basically just, I mean, I was always, and I'm still a bit like that now, one of those kind of guys who says, um, uh, I don't mind where we go, but because we're going to have a good time. So I never really made that many decisions as a teenager. Mm -hmm. When they were, all my mates were going, let's go out for a drink. Should we go to a disco or a pub? I go, I don't mind. You go wherever we want. We're going to have a laugh. I don't mind. And I'm a little bit like that now. I just kind of go with the flow. Maybe that's my Jamaican heritage uh, kicking in there. 
it's a blessing and a curse, really, because you find yourself in situations that once you're in them, you go, actually, I, I should have said no to this. And uh, but I went with the flow. I mean, what's that film? Is a film based on a book, a Jim Carrey film called Yes Man. And I think a guy wrote a book called Say Yes to Everything. Yeah. He just spent a year saying yes to everything and to see where it took him. And then he wrote a book about it, a very successful book. So, um, so yeah, it's, sometimes it's good to just wake up one morning and say, whatever happens today, I'm going to say yes. It doesn't matter what it is, I'm going to say yes to it and see where it takes me. Going to say yes to the double gin at five o'clock. <laughs> I'll say yes to that. <laughs> I'm really interested in this training that you had because you cross so many boundaries in the arts if you like in that you know you can sing you can dance you can act you can write you can direct where did that come from was that part of the training that these these lessons that you schlepped across um london for helped you with was it just something intuitive inside of you that gradually you learned on the jobs that you were doing you know in the business Well, that was the first stage of it. I mean, um, primary school teachers do a very, very important job, but it's very rare that someone's inspired to spend a career doing something that somebody teaches you when you're in your, your, those early years there. And it's, when you get into your teens, things start happening and you start forming your ideas about where you want to go in life or where you don't want to go in life and, and all of that. I, I, um, but I've, I've been lucky enough to work with some fantastic people. In fact, I work with a guy... I didn't actually work with him. His name was Kenny Earl. He was an agent. He was half of a double act called Earl and Vaughan. And, and uh, Malcolm Vaughan, who I funnily enough did a summer season with, was a wonderful light operatic singer. And Kenny was a kind of comedian. And uh, he was an, an agent when I met him. And he said to me one day, this is very early stages. It was in the, it was in the studio uh, of um, uh, up there in Birmingham before I went on, on New Faces. Mm-hmm. And we were chatting away and I was talking to Alan Clive, my, my mentor, and, and uh, at that time, my agent. And, uh, and Kenny came up to me and he said, you know something, son, you're going to go, son, they all called you son then. You know something, son, you're going to go a long, long way in this business. And do you know why? I went, no. He said, because you listen. And that's something that stuck with me. If you really listen to what people say, um, you, you know, you can... You, you, you can't go far wrong, really. Um, you know, you, and I've worked with some great people like Henry Lewis, who was the musical director of Carmen Jones. Mm-hmm. When I went into that show, the only show I'd done was um, uh, was Me and My Girl, which was kind of like archetypal Cockney character from 1937. Um, and, uh, uh, and I'd never done opera before. And he was so helpful, so caring and wanted me to, to be good. And, um, and so it was people like Henry... That, that really, really helped me. But I, they wouldn't have helped me if I hadn't have listened. It's really important to listen. And, um, and so many other people that have just made little comments. John Scofield, up in, he ran um, uh, television up in uh, the Midlands there in, Not- in Nottingham for a while, a very a big producer at the time. Uh, and he said some very nice things to me. And uh, he was quite aloof. He was a very tough man. But one day, socially, he just turned to me and said, you're a really simple bloke, really, aren't you? And I said, yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> Outside to me. <laughs> so Gary, new faces. That was massive. Which going back to the eighties. Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, I think I did it in seventy eight, seventy seventy eight, seventy nine, seventy eight. I think it was. You were young, early twenties at this point. That really propelled you, didn't it? And kind of got people knowing your face, knowing who you were a little bit. Yeah, it's it, it's very different to the way it is today. Um, back then, you had 
uh, four or five channels to choose from. Uh, so, and programs like New Faces have 18 million viewers every single week. That's like almost a third of the population at the time. And if you did well on there, everybody knew you straight away. And I can remember the day after the show went out, I was walking across a zebra crossing in, uh, in Trafalgar Square and the car hooted and I looked to see what's he hooting at. And he went, it's the guy driving the car. Just went, <laughs> you know, and, he, and that was, at that point I thought television's really powerful, isn't it? It really is powerful. You know, 18 million viewers as well. I don't, I can't think of any show nowadays that gets that. You know, all the top rates, you know, X Factor and Strictly and shows, they're not, they're not hitting the 18 million mark. So. No, 18 million was a a huge amount. And um, uh, here that I see programs, they go, oh yeah, we're getting over a million viewers. Let's keep it on. Mm. But it was, there was money to spend then as well. The shows were, were bigger. And when you're producing a show like Strictly, I mean, the money they spend on Strictly, it's an enormous amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but they get it back, obviously, and it's, um, and it's worth it because you see all the quality up there. How did you find that entry into telly? Did you find it daunting? You know, when people were starting to recognise you, did you feel that there was a pressure to succeed? Or did you just, like you say before, kind of go with the flow and just take it day by day? No, there's definitely a pressure to succeed, to get it right because there's a lot of people involved. There's, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of people involved in making a television programme. And if you go wrong, it, it's all right. I, heard people, I hear people saying, oh, if you go wrong, it's television, you can do it again. But let me tell you, do you know how many noses you put out of joint when you have to keep doing it over and over and over again? So you try and get it right. And it is tough. I, I did a series, oh, it's got to be 25 years ago now, called Showstoppers for the BBC. And there was an orchestra of sometimes uh, 75 musicians, usually 65, but on the other occasion, they would get extra brass in. And um, so you've got all those musicians, all the technicians, all the other artists you're working with, and there's no auto cue. Mm-hmm. And we had to learn a 50 minute show every single week. You know, it was, it was really hard work. I, I wouldn't want to do that again, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it was hard work. And somehow you do it. Mm-hmm. You know, some, somehow it just has to go in. Was that a good training ground for you? Because Shows like that don't exist really nowadays, certainly not in the same format. Do you feel that now whatever you take on and, and do, you've got a really good grounding and, and, and a lot to compare it to? I was, as I said before, I was, my education was in the clubs and, and pubs of, of London, uh, where really you're as good as your last show. That, and and if, you, if you do a bad show, it gets round and nobody books you. So you're continually trying to give them a good show. In fact, I came up with a phrase back then that I still use today and probably sums up my, my general um, feeling about what I do. And it's I, I work tonight to make it better for tomorrow night's audience. So I'm always looking for new things to do, new ways. When you find something perfect, it's great. Then you can, if you're in a show for a year, you can do that for several months and then it gets a little bit stale and you kind of go, right, what else can I do? And you find something new. There's always something new to find out there. After two years in Me and My Girl, in the last two weeks, I found a little kind of reaction that I did. And I thought, why didn't I think of that two years ago? But it's all part of the process. And uh, uh, yeah. so, yeah, I, 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 I think, I mean, I'm doing something tomorrow night. It's for, um, uh, it's for, for a charity for the Royal Theatrical Fund. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm, we're doing a play reading. Um, of a, a play called uh, The Real Inspector Hound. And it's with the likes of Derek, we're all on screen. It's Derek Jacobi, Robert Lindsay, um, uh, Samantha Bond, Sanjeev Bhaskar. 
and Simon Callow and just just really big names. And I'm nervous about it. Of course, I'm nervous about it. I, I can't say, oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. But people say, oh, no, I'm not nervous. I'm excited. No, I'm nervous about it because I, I don't want to let them down. And it's a live reading and I want to do a very good job. So, so yeah, there's always that adrenaline that, that, that keeps you going and hones the concentration. One of the big hurdles for me is that I'm dyslexic. So it's, it's always, and there are a lot of people in our industry like that, I've discovered. But it makes, it puts more and more pressure on, on, the, on, on reading things live. But I've learned to cope with it. You find little techniques, little things that you can do. I know some people, like Rob Lindsay, for instance, could pick up a script and just read it and give an interpretation. I can't do that. Okay. You know, I just can't do that. So I have to go over it and 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 just hope that my concentration stays strong so that I can get I mean, it right. I mean, in terms of your concentration, I've seen you on stage in Radio Times. I've seen you in all the Palladium Pantos. Um, seen you at the Mayflower. You have this incredible i think concentration uh, an ability to to read an audience and to kind of gain their trust and get their attention um i don't think you've got any worries about tomorrow gary i think it's going to be ace and just to let people know it will all be available for us to to pay to watch online won't it to to support the arts yeah absolutely um i've had this said to me a few times uh actually uh that you know people that and on many, many times they've said to me, and it's not me blowing out on trumpet, I'm really quoting. They say, when you walk on stage, we suddenly go, ah, we're all right. We're going to be, we're in safe hands now. And that's a great feeling. I want that to be the case because watching a play, I've sat in many auditoriums and uh, auditoria and thought, I so wish I feel so uncomfortable because that performer isn't right, correctly cast or the pieces are strong and you really feel for it. And I don't go to the theatre for that. I go to the theatre because I want to sit back and relax and be entertained. Um, and uh, so, so that's a really good thing. I, I, I love it when people say that to me. I feel comfortable. And also you can play the, the funny character, you know, the comedy, the, the dame, the, the, the debonair lead, all manner of things. Where did that come from? Because uh, I assumed before I sleuthed you and did my research that perhaps you'd gone to RADA or, you know, GSA or something like that. So where does that all come from? Um, I honestly don't know. It, it's, it, it's situations I find myself in. I just try to do the best I can. That's all I've done. I don't know whether I'm... I've always said this it's not, to young performers. It's not about being good or bad. It's about being right or wrong. Somebody, you mean, uh, Anthony Hopkins is one of the greatest actors we've ever turned out of this country, or, or Wales, in fact. But, uh, um, but you wouldn't cast him as Cinderella, would you? <laughs> it's because he's not right. He's as brilliant as he is, he couldn't carry that one off. Uh, actually, probably he could. But, uh, uh, and I was doing, I was rehearsing for a pantomime, still with a foot very firmly in variety mm-hmm. and television. And, uh, and I was rehearsing for a pantomime around the back of the Fortune Theatre. And my then agent said to me, I've got you a, an audition or a meeting with a man called Mike Ockrand. And Mike Ockrand was a genius. He was the man who originally uh, directed and, and mentored uh, Willie Russell in the writing of Educating Rita. Mm-hmm. He directed Crazy For You and created it and, and then... Create, um, directed me and my girl Stephen Fry got Stephen Fry in to rewrite the script and um, and it was to audition for him now uh, me and my girl were looking for somebody to play the role of Sally so they were set up for auditions but my agent managed to get me in to meet him not to play the role of Sally not even to be in um, in the show uh, even I thought it was a long long way 
you know, we had a lot of work to do yet with regard to racial equality in theatre um, or blind casting, if you like, is a better way of putting it. Uh, and uh, but uh, I, they said, you go meet him and he does lots of stuff and he'll like you and then you'll get into other stuff. So I turned up and they gave me a song to sing for me and my girl and I did a bit of the dance. What they didn't know is I was actually educated in the uh, in the Lambeth Walk. My school was in the Lambeth Walk. So if I didn't know Bill Snipson, the character, I certainly, if if I wasn't him, I certainly knew loads. Anyway, so I did it. Um, As I said, not thinking that anyone would would cast me in that role up until then. It had been the likes of Carl Howman and Robert Lindsay and Mm -hmm. and just not blind casted at all. And uh, and the next day they phoned up and said, you know, we'd like to see, introduce Gary to the producer because we're really interested in being in the part. They phoned up Stephen Fry and said, what do you think? He said, I think it would be great. And, uh, and so I found myself in a West End show. And the thing about me and my girl is it was written for Lupino Lane, who was a variety performer, a huge variety performer in the 30s. And, um, and it, whilst it was a modern production, it still had, still retained that air of variety about it. So all of the elements within that show I'd actually done before, the singing, the dancing, all the scenes, as far as I was concerned, were sketches. Mm-hmm. And they did loads of those on things like the Saturday game with Hale and Pace and Kate Robbins and, and uh, uh, copycats. You know, we were always doing sketches. So I felt it fitted me like a glove. Absolutely fitted me like a glove. Um, and I was into musical theatre. You know, it was as simple as that. And it seems, I didn't know this at the time, but I was the talk of the town. So, you know, I wish I'd have known it at the time. I got me to one or two restaurants. But... Uh, <laughs> Right. Gary, it's probably why it kept you so grounded, though, that you you know you didn't know. Yeah, I am. I'm pretty grounded. I'm pretty ordinary bloke, really. I, you know, I I I moved with. I feel comfortable with kings and queens and 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 anybody. You know, I, I that's just my background, really. I mean, when I was growing up on a, a South London council estate, if you wanted wallpapering done, you did it yourself. We never got the decorators in. So even now I've a, on that mentality and I struggle. I just go, really? Can't I just do it? Can't I just do paint the skirting board or something? You know, I, um, now we've got to get to it. So, you know, I, that's, that's me. I'm pretty grand. I'm not grand at all. And, um, you know, but I'm, I like to think I'm respectful and, uh, and polite. And I think my mum would be proud of me. Absolutely. And respected. Um, what was that like then? Your first foray into the West End, big show, was it everything you had um, expected it to be? Uh, that, the only way I can measure it, really, is at that time I was doing lots of hotel cabaret, that, like, you know, the Dorchester and the, uh, the Grosvenor House Hotel and lots of other ones as well around, uh, around Lancaster Gate. You know, I was kind of one of the go-to cabaret performers. And, uh, but I kind of had enough of that. I was, um, the, the money was fantastic, and I couldn't deny that. The money was great. But when you go out on some of those places, it's very hit and miss on what your audience is going to be or what the microphone is going to be like. Or, you know, you walk out and everybody's been drinking since half past six in the evening because it's some big convention. Mm -hmm. I sing a few songs. It really wasn't pleasant. I have to say that at that time. So when musical theatre came along, um, I was getting, as far as the wage is concerned, which is the way I'm I'm measuring it in this instance, in, in this instance, um, I was getting half as much for the week as I would get for a night doing a cabaret gig. Wow. I was in heaven. I absolutely loved it. And I thought this is the way forward. And, uh, and over the years, I've, the money hasn't got any better, but the gigs get better. 
And, uh, you know, and I get to work with lots of people and I don't have to worry about the microphone and I don't have to worry about the other actors and the, the bands are always working with great bands, brilliant players. So my, it's such admiration for, for guys who sit in orchestra pits. They're just, just wonderful, wonderful people and the backbone of our industry, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, and I, but I just keep trucking and doing my best and hoping that I work with better and better people. The one thing I have known is, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I played lots of football in my teens. It was a big sport. Oh, I did. I spoke about the dressing rooms, didn't I? And, um, and I played with quite a number of international players as well. So it's quite a high level, uh, ex-players. And, 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 and whenever I played with them, in a weird way, my game was raised. My game was better. You know, when they gave the ball to me, it was properly it arrived immediately at my, it wasn't a foot one side or the, it was per- perfect. And, uh, and, and I like to draw that analogy, um, apply that analogy to, to performing. When I'm working with really good directors, actors, lighting and sound men, whatever area of uh, musical theatre they're in, I raise my game. You know, if I've got a good sound engineer and I just go, wow, I'm going to be better tonight because people can can hear me and when you've got a great lighting design you just go oh I can feel I'm in a good position on the stage to perform I've got the best tools at my fingertips so you know my game is raised and um, that's why I like doing that but having said that I'm quite happy going to places like Newbury where you know there's not a lot of money there the water mill at Newbury there's not a lot of money there but they make the best of it they get great people who, who can, you know, you give them a pencil and say, can you make me some scenery? And they somehow do it. And, you know, and so I admire those kind of people as well. It's, it's, um, it, it's tough. And that, that's the true heart of the attraction. And, you know, the Watermill Newbury Theatre, it's, it's up there as well, isn't it? It is deemed a very kind of respectful, high-end theatre for performers to go to, you know, a bit like Chichester Festival Theatre that, that debuts the shows that go to the West End. And do you have a favourite theatre? to perform? I've got a few few that I love doing. Probably, when I say the top of the list, that top of the list is very tight, you know. uh, But there's places like the uh, Theatre Royal in in Plymouth, I think it probably will be the top. Uh, In Scotland, it would probably be, well, it is, the Kings at Glasgow. The audiences there have been so kind to me over the years. Um, You know, I'll give them a good show, but nonetheless, (laughs) they're they're, they're good. You know, they're really generous, and and I like that. and of course, um, as far as London is concerned, there are two. One is the Adelphi, because I did near my girl there. For the, mm-hmm. It was the first show I did. But it has to be the Palladium. The Palladium is head and shoulders, as far as a building is concerned, uh, above any theatre. Um, it's about, it's about uh, as perfect a theatre as you can, you can get. And, uh, and, in, and in, that, in, those, in those conditions, uh, and everybody knows that they're going to somewhere special, um, again, if you can't work there, you shouldn't be in the business because it's all there for you to, to use. The Palladium is extraordinary. Um, amazing, massive, huge, star-studded shows. Gary, I need to ask you this. The song you sing with the London Underground oh, yeah. tube stations in is yeah. phenomenal. How? <laughs> how do you learn that? <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a weird one, that... Um, uh, I was doing, what was I doing? I was doing a show in London at the time. Uh, it was Wind in the Willows, which we were going to do at the Palladium, which was a massive advantage when I tell you um, where I got the idea for the song. And I was going in every day uh, on the on the tube. I was going in because I live out of London. So I get the train in, then the tube. And on the tube, there was a big poster I passed every day about 
um, said, you know, under, uh, exhibition, the London, the London Underground, the London Underground. I saw this all the time, and I just saw, and I knew the pantomime was coming up. And I thought, I wonder if anyone's going to ever done that before, you know, some of the song with all the London Underground tubes, stations in it. And uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give it a go. So, and this was about, must have been about May. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I came up with the idea of putting all those to the, uh, to the tune of the Can Can. And I wrote the first verse and I just thought, is this possible? Uh, I don't know if this is possible or not because there's like 270 odd stations. And, um, and it's not just about the number of stations, it's about getting them all in a sensible order so that they rhyme mm-hmm. or they make, you know, they're, they're comical. And uh, so I started to write it, got about halfway through it. And so every night, because I was at the Palladium anyway, doing Wind in the Willows, every day after our vocal warm-up, the whole company get together and we have a warm-up, physical and vocal, I would stay on stage and I would stand centre stage and sing that, what I knew of the song. So in essence, I started to learn it six months before I actually did it at the Palladium. And I still hadn't written the song. And I got the first half of it under my belt and I went, I think I can do with do this. And then I went to the producer and I just said, I've got this idea. He heard it and immediately loved it and said, finish it, finish it, finish it. Um, our musical directors said, it's a bit long, isn't it? It's a bit long. I went, no, it's got to be this length. Mm-hmm. And, um, and before you know, that was one of the most scary times of my life when I actually walked out on the stage at London Palladium about to sing this song that goes on for five minutes. Um, and you can't get one single syllable wrong. Uh, it moves so quickly. But yeah, and after that, made a rod for my own back, really, because I have to come up with one every year. <laughs> it's phenomenal. I bet Michael Harrison, I bet you were his favourite person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't, let me tell you, I, I don't ever remember uh, anything I've ever done getting the kind of reaction that that got. Because there's a natural pause about two thirds of the way through when I have to stop and take a breath. Uh, there are several breaths, but that one I just have to stop. And, and the whole audience were on their feet applauding. And I, I'd only got two thirds through the song. Uh, and then I, I started off again and kind of, I could see people in the audience looking at one another and go, is, is this for real? Is this actually happening? Michael Ball came back and said, at one point I looked over my shoulder because I thought it would have been on auto cue at the back of the auditorium, but it's not. And, um, and he said, just phenomenal. No, it was one of the highlights of my life, the performing life, I have to say. Wow. I mean, I was, I was there. Um, and yeah, the, we were all going nuts. Yeah. Absolutely nuts. I think people just couldn't believe that, yeah. you know, and you had a standing ovation at the end and, and the, the, the talk on Twitter, Gary as well was insane, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, well, so. not, I mean, it, it did take an awful lot of work, but I think in my heart of hearts, I knew it was a good bit. I would take my dog out, Biggie, and we'd be walking through the fields and I would be going, Hyde Park Corner, Rangers Lane, Kings Cross and Bankers Bankwood Lane. And I would do that all the time. I would wake up in the morning, drove my wife mad because I'd be waking up with Hyde Park Corner, Rangers Lane, Kings Cross and Bankwood Lane all the time. And it was, uh, and even now I still got, in fact, uh, it's one of the things that we're talking about putting into the show this year again at the, at the Palladium. So, um, Brilliant. So what was it like getting the call to ask you to, to be in the panto that they were bringing back? Well, I worked every year for Michael Harrison, um, and then uh, then I didn't. I didn't for one year in Birmingham. I think I did two years in Birmingham. Uh, yeah, two years I think I did in Birmingham, and then I, I wanted to go somewhere else. And, um, and Michael said, oh, well, we don't have a pantomime for you this year. I went, that's fine. I'll go with another company, which I did, which was very handy for me because it was just up the road from where I lived. So it meant my Christmas was going to be at home. 
So that was nice. And then the following year, Michael phoned me up and said, would you like to play Dame at the, uh, at the Palladium? And I said, yes, it's as simple as that. It, you know, you don't turn the Palladium down. I'd been there uh, a couple of times before. I'd been there twice in, in um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. We had a long running show there, Wind in the Willows, of course. Um, uh, and, uh, and lots of other variety shows, smaller, shorter shows as well. So I, I knew the theatre and couldn't wait to get back there. Um, so, yeah, I just said, yeah, let, let's do it. Let's do it. I'd love to do it. Yeah. And Gary, congratulations on this year because you will be back um, yes. in the form of a kind of panto Christmas show, I think, that they're, they're trying to put on with um, under COVID regulations and with social distancing and, and to try and get the whole thing to, to work in a safe way. How does that feel? Are you excited with, you know, theatre land being on pause for such a long time. Yeah, it's really weird. Um, I, had, I haven't really had time to get excited. I mean, it, what suddenly happened after having the whole summer of doing nothing, when we went into lockdown, I was at the Prince of, at the Dominion Theatre in the Prince of Egypt. We'd only been open for five weeks and we were all very up about that. And, um, and so when that closed, we thought, oh, it's gonna be three weeks, five weeks, 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. We realized it was gonna be you know, half a career sitting at home. And then all of a sudden things started happening. Things, you know, people saying we can't sit on our bums, you know, forever. We've got to start making things happen. So I immediately got this, um, uh, I got, got a call to do a film of The Grinch, uh, which I'm working on at the moment. Uh, and that's gonna be very difficult because, you, because we do actually go into physical lockdown in a couple of weeks where we all have to stay in the same hotel. But it's for American television. I think they're gonna show it here a couple of times, but for The Grinch. And then I get the, the real Inspector Hound, um, Paul yeah. Jackson contacts and said, well, you know, will you, will you do this? And so I said, yeah. And then the panto. So now I'm, I'm kind of got lots of work uh, over this time. So I haven't really had time to get excited, but I, I know that nearer the time I will be very excited. It's, um, I, I tell you what it is. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be a kind of a, a best of, and they've had four fantastic shows at the Palladium and to pick the best out of that and put them in one show. And the reason they're doing that is um, they, we think it's going to be just an amazing show. Um, but also there has been no time to make new costumes or new sets. The sets they've got are just mind blowing. You know that you've seen the show. So there's no shame in using them again. But um, so there just hasn't because of COVID, they haven't had the time. They wanted to put on a new show, and then they thought about bringing back an older show, and then we passed the, the deadline for that, and now they're doing this kind of mega mix, if you like. So I'm very excited about that. Which is actually brilliant, because, you know, when you go and watch a pant at the Palladium, I always come away and think, oh, I wish I could just see that bit again, or, or, <laughs> or watch that bit again, you know, because there's so much to take in, and your eyes are all across the stage trying to... And so this will be brilliant if they're picking the best bits from, from the last four shows. Um, yeah. It'll be awesome for people to just um, be a little bit nostalgic as well, which is what we all need at the moment. Yeah, I, I know that everyone's going to be on the top of their game. From the little bits of work I've done over the last few weeks, people are so eager to get back in the rehearsal room and do stuff and do what we love doing. And um, so, yeah, it's going to be a fantastic show. So it's, uh, yeah, it's great. Very excited. Gary, what was it like you know, being in back in March, um, having only opened the show for five weeks, Prince of Egypt um, at the Dominion Theatre, and then being told, everyone, you just all need to go. Um, I, I suppose I'll look back and say it was devastating. But it wasn't. It was numbing, was what it was. We'd never experienced anything like this before. I think once a long, long time ago, I was, when I was in Me and My Girl, the heating packed up. 
so we couldn't do a show so everyone was sent home uh, and then at the palladium the uh, the council decided to dig up the road outside and, and caused all the audience all the lights in the in the auditorium to to go out so we had to cancel that show uh, so it was a little bit like that feeling but at, at that time we were all going oh we're going to be home for three weeks that'd be nice bit of a holiday that'd be great and then it turned into five weeks and then we started to worry um there were people i mean i i'm very lucky because i've i've had a a pretty good career so you know I'm not living hand to mouth I'm not a rich man but I'm not living hand to mouth like some of the younger performers in the show mm-hmm. who have spent their early years from the age of seven um, you know going to dancing schools and into college and all that costs literally tens of thousands of pounds they get themselves into a, a show that looks like it's going to run and run but not just a show that's going to run and run it's a great show it's very fulfilling mm-hmm. you know the, the talent in, in Prince of Egypt is extraordinary absolutely extraordinary uh some of the best choreography and dancing i've ever seen anywhere and uh and the voices and the stephen schwartz's music is just to die for it's amazing and scott his son has directed and he's done a remarkable job it's a you know my fingers crossed that it's going to open again Mm. but it's all these things are all about money and there might come a point where they just say, I'm sorry, we can't do that. And I'll feel sad for the musical um, viewing public because they will miss out on such an amazing show. Mm. So different and exciting and new and fresh. And I was honoured to be a part, of, uh, a part of it. It was on my bucket list to come and see. And yeah. no, no lying, because the reviews were brilliant. So I'm keeping everything crossed. Yeah, you know, 20, 2021... Come on, come on, West End, let's get it. The producers have been brilliant. They have regular Zoom calls, and if any bits of publicity come up, you know, um, that they encourage us to get involved. So, so yeah, um, yeah I really hope it, 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 it happens. Gary, let's, I just want to go through some of the shows you've been in, if I may, because the list is long. Um, <laughs> me and My Girl... You've also done Shakespeare. We should probably speak about that. Copacabana, Pirates of Penzance, Chitty, Chicago, um, Harper Sixpence, Oklahoma, Wizard of Oz, Wind in the Willows, Oliver, uh, Radio Times, which we mentioned before, Flowers for Mrs. Harris. Oh, brilliant show. Um, So, so many. Is there a favourite? Yeah, there there are a few that I really cherish. Uh, again, for the same reason I mentioned the Adelphi Theatre, it was me and my girl. It was a show that was made for me. I did two years in London and then was delighted to go out on the road for a year with that same show. I was, I was very, very pleased about that. Um, Flowers for Mrs. Harris is such, uh, I mean, I'll get I'll well up just thinking about it. It's one of the most, one of the most beautiful pieces of theatre of any kind I've seen. It was just beautiful. And, and, you know, I, I had a small part in it. You know, I, I was playing an old major and um, popped in and out of it and a couple of other parts as well. But um, but Claire Burt in the lead uh, was just mind-blowing, absolutely mind-blowing and, uh, uh, and a beautiful... Uh, audiences went away in tears of laughter and joy and, and sadness as well. It's a, a truly remarkable piece. So I suppose those... Uh, I'm honoured to have played some great roles like... Um, uh, Fagan in Oliver, um, you know, Stephen stroke Tony in Copacabana, sing, you know, a show that's got probably the best songs of any show I've ever, ever heard. Um, I think the book's a bit dodgy myself, but the songs make more than make up for that. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I've been very lucky. Carmen Jones, you know, why, why would you have this little lad from South London in an opera? But, you know, they did. And, uh, and I did 18 months in that. So, yeah, great stuff. 
Copacabana I saw as a teenager twice I remember um using up my like allowance to, to <laughs> see it a second time because I loved it so much um oh I just thought it was the set I just thought it was a, I was about 14 15 I thought it was a really sexy show yeah absolutely um, you know yeah. amazing do you still get that nervousness that excitement before you perform before you go on stage you know did a hair still kind of prick up on your arms you know um you have experiences in your life that that kind of hone your thinking about being at the side of a stage i i did a series television series called q gary and it was one actor who been on eastenders a very experienced actor and all he had to say in the whole piece was yes that's all he had to say (laughs) So he's delivering, basically he's a delivery man and he's delivering the 12 days of Christmas and, and he delivers a partridge in a pear tree and I say, is this for me? And he says, yes. And it's clear he can't speak English. And uh, so I say, who sent it? He says, yes. And that's all he has to say. He doesn't say anything other than yes, yes, yes to every question. And we came to the, this filming night and I opened the door, I said, is this for me? And he said, no. And I, I was shocked. And then he went, oh, yeah, oh yes, yes, yes like this and so we had to do a retake and what that told me is nerves can strike you at any time you know they can um, and and so I stand in the wings and I'm I there and I think about that actor who said no instead of yes and um and I think that could happen to me so I try and get on it as much as I possibly can but I also know and this is a great tool in my box I think I also know that if you get it wrong it's not the end of the world you know, it's, it's, um, we're not saving lives. It's only showbiz. So, you know, I, I know that either experience or talent or someone else will get me out of a situation as I would get them out of their situation mm. somehow, you know, and, and you live to fight another day. That's what you do. What's the worst that can happen? A group, an audience, a group of people you've never met before and are never going to meet again, don't like you. That's the worst that can happen. Mm. You know, so that kind of keeps me a little bit grounded and confident if you like yeah I use, that is I use re- things like that yeah. great advice that is really good advice actually um which I think I can use in my day-to-day you know <laughs> quite to other bits of my life you are able to play such a wide range of roles do you think it's 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 that and your versatility and the the broad range that your career has had so far that's kind of kept you in the business and kept you working and getting these great offers? Um, yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword, really. Uh, you know, if you're Oliver Reed and you go, I'm going to play bad men all my life, the producers end up saying, we need Oliver Reed. If we can't get Oliver Reed, get an Oliver Reed type. Mm-hmm. So uh, sometimes it's really good. And Michael Caine, you know, he's, 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 he's slightly different. He's playing different characters in every movie, but he's Michael Caine. There's no getting away from that. Mm-hmm. John Wayne, one of the most successful film actors of all time, was the same in every single movie he ever did. Now, um, a lot of British actors, they'll go, oh, I'll wear a moustache for this and I'll have a hump and I'll do this, I'll stand up straight or I'll do a funny walk or whatever it is. And, and so, and I kind of fall in between the two. I, I like to try and be myself, but it's been a struggle to be myself when you don't really know who you are and yet as an actor it's the most unique thing I have you know to be myself so uh but you know I I I like to think I've got jobs because I can change a little bit I do a reasonably good American accent so and a musical theatre that's a pretty important thing Mm -hmm. um so so yeah um I I I don't know I don't it's a it's a little bit like racism for me 
in a funny way. I don't mean this in a deep, meaningful way, but you never really know as an actor whether you've been discriminated against with regard to getting a part mm -hmm. because of the colour of your skin. You don't really know because nobody tells, they don't tell you why you get a job anyway, why you don't get a job anyway. Mm. You know, that's the most frustrating thing about our industry is you go and you go, I did a great audition there and you don't get it. You go, can you ask them why? A, they won't give you the right reason because it could be because you're too small, too short, too old, too gray, too bald, too long hair, whatever it is, you know, you never really know, but they'll just say, oh, not this time, you know, and, and so they never give you a proper answer. Not only that, you can't look, you can't change the way you look, no. you know, it, uh, if you're six foot six, you can't go, oh, well, I'll, I'll be five foot 10. You know, you can't do that. So you just kind of get on with it. So uh, I don't mean racism. I mean, the, the the, you know, the, choosing somebody because of the colour of their skin. Mm. But on the other side of that, um, uh, I, I've got playing people like in Me and My Girl, Bill Snibson, indeed Sammy Shaw in, in, um, in Radio Times, playing Fagan, uh, playing Barry Manilow in Copacabana. You know, all those things I've done as a black person. Mm. And I've not, maybe it's wrong with me, I don't know, but I've never really stood up on a soapbox and gone, I, I've done that and I'm black. I've never really done that. I just get down and get on with it. Mm. And I've said this to many people in Prince of Egypt. I said, it, it, it's always going to be a struggle because we never know what a producer wants. Producers and directors don't even know what they want until they see it. Mm. But just be the ver work at being the very best you can be and then people will want to work with you. Mm. Yeah, because they want, to work with, they want to work with nice people, don't they? They don't want someone who's going to... Absolutely. Absolutely. And create the best, the best team and the best ensemble yeah. and, you know, have a happy, have a happy working show. Yeah. Me and my girl on, in London, I was the only black person in the show on the tour. There was another one, I think. And, and that was it. But things have changed. You look at Prince of Egypt. My goodness, it's such a diverse diversity of, of, of backgrounds. I mean, literally from all over the world. And um, so. So, yeah, I mean, you, you it's 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 quite weird how it's come on you know it really is and and brilliant that it has and oh great because uh, and it's take it take, takes a long long time but what you have to remember is it's theatre it's not the real world if somebody who's four foot six walks out and says I'm the giant we as an audience go he's the giant you know uh, and so there's yeah. no it's not the real world this is theatre. And it's for everyone. It doesn't matter. I mean, the, the chicken shed company will tell you that. It's about, it's about people going out and delivering great scripts and doing their best to entertain people. Yeah, and inclu inclusivity. Absolutely, yes, yeah. As well, Gary, as you know, performing on stage, you also write and direct. Have you got any plans to, to pursue that in the imminent future? Anything, you know, bubbling away that you're, you're working on? Yeah, in, in musicals these days, I tend to look for smaller roles so that I can sit in the dressing room and write. <laughs> um, I did it a few years ago. Um, I had this idea for a long time. I've always written bits and pieces and songs and stuff like that. But I've, um, uh, when I went in to do Big uh, in Plymouth and, and, um, and in Dublin over a Christmas period about five years ago, I suppose it is now, um, I got this idea and I thought, now, if I get to the end of this eight-week period, and all I've done is Sudoku and crosswords. I'm going to be very angry with myself. Um, so I sat in the dressing room after the warm-up and I just started to write. I was on an iPad and it's really awkward writing a play on an iPad. But anyway, when I got my laptop um, with, its, with the programme for writing scripts, uh, I kind of, it took me ages to put it in. But anyway, by about six weeks of writing, I had the bones of a script 
to get some other actors in the show to have a read through back at the apartment. And they all said, um, all four of them said, you have to do this. It's a really, really good story. Script needs work, but it's a good story. And I did. Um, and then one or two things happened. Um, serendipity, being in the right place, right time. I met a producer who said, we're doing new work down in Bognor Regis. Will you, you, you know, and I said, I've just written a play. Come down, let's do it. So we, we did it down there and it, it went extremely well. And I've just finished the, um, the, I've never written a screenplay before, but I was in, encouraged by a screenwriter friend of, of, of ours who, who, um, who had read it, read the stage play and said, I think you can do the screenplay too. So I've just finished the screenplay. So who knows, you know, these things, uh, uh, who knows? <laughs> can, we, can you tell us the name of it? What's it called? Uh, yeah, it's called Sweet Lorraine. And it's about, um, it's about a jazz musician. It's actually about a jazz musician and, and a, 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 a woman who uh, believes that he's her father. And so she, you know, but I can't tell you any more than that. It's not a comedy. It's a thriller. It's very, very, Dark, very dark, and not like you would expect from Gary Wilmot. <laughs> and and will you be in it? Uh, I I wasn't in a one down in Bognor Regis. I directed that because I wanted to stand back and look at it. And um, uh, but if it ever, I wouldn't think twice about it. If we if we got a really good director, I wouldn't think any, any you know twice about playing the role. But uh, um, but no, I'm I'm quite happy to take a back seat. Really. Okay. You know, well, very back. exciting. Watch this space, everybody. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Gary, we, I know we're running out of time. I just really want to ask you, if I may, you were, um, in 2018, made member of the Order of the British Empire um, for services to drama and charity. How did that feel? It was all right. No, it was... <laughs> <laughs> It was fantastic, and um, and I've I've met pretty much all of the royal family. So it was all the one generation, the you know the Prince Charles and Edward and, and all the rest of it. Uh, I, I I met all those over the years at various functions and and royal variety performances and stuff like that. And that's that's great. It's always lovely to do that. Um, but these things happen in quite quick succession. Um, I was asked if, in the May if I wanted, if I would accept, because that's what they do. They write to you and say, if you were offered, would you accept? They don't like being turned down. So they say, if you were offered, would you accept? And I went back saying, yeah. And then they came back with the offer. And so I went there. And, uh, but about, about six weeks before I was due to receive it, I was asked um, by Chris Luscombe, a director and producer, to, uh, who was organising a show at Buckingham Palace to celebrate Charles's 70th birthday. And would I go along and perform the London Underground song? Oh, my God. And, uh, and so I said, uh, well, yeah, of course, I would love to do that. So I went along, and in the ballroom there, they've got some, I don't know if you've ever been there, there's a massive big room. Okay. And, uh, where they, and, uh, and so I, I went out, and there was, there were, Alfie Bow was there singing, and a couple of other acts, really good, a quick change act, and a, a great violinist, and, um, uh, uh, and, a, and a soprano. And I sang my London Underground song, and did a bit of a sketch as well, and helped Prince Edward put his cousin into a box, and saw him in half as well. And, uh, um, and that was great. And I walked out on stage to do the London Underground song. This is a song that I performed many times before, but all of a sudden, it's never happened to me before in my life. My my mouth was suddenly the Sahara Desert, and uh, but I managed to get through the song. Great, wonderful. Now, about two weeks later, I'm back in that same room, about uh, to be given my M uh, MBE, uh, and it's William uh, doing the job. Mm -hmm. And and as I stepped forward, he said, "I'm so pleased it was you." 
uh, I saw your name on the list and uh, I'm so pleased to be giving you this today. We loved your song. Uh, so thank you very much. He said, how do you remember that? And it's obviously the question that everybody asked when I said, I gave a quick story. And then he said, what made it even funnier is that the room didn't only have all 48 members of the royal family in there, um, but there were um, kings and queens and princes and princesses and dignitaries from all over the world. And he said, and a lot of them couldn't speak English and they had no idea what you were singing about. <laughs> you know, they don't know what Cock Fosters is. <laughs> So, uh, and they said, and, and me and my, my mates, he said, we just thought that was the funniest thing, but well done, fantastic. So we had, there's a lovely photograph online of me talking to him actually, and uh, laughing at him telling me that little story. But it was great, yeah, it was a wonderful time, great experience. What, what a massive moment in your life, Gary, that must have been, all of it. There have been a couple of things that have made me pinch myself, that was one to be standing there in front of everybody on my own, on a stage in front of a band and singing a, a, a word song to the, to the royal family. But I'll tell you what really brought it home to me, um, uh, th this kind of how far I've come as a, as a performer, as a person. And um, I was doing a, this is really weird what I'm going to say now, but I did a, a five-part drama series for BBC Radio 4 about two, three months ago right in the middle of lockdown. And I did it in this very room with a microphone. It was Stephen Tompkinson and, and other actors as well, and all terrific. And we were all sitting, on, one girl was actually under the stairs with a sheet over her head talking into the microphone. And, uh, and so we did this play, it was about uh, prostate cancer. And the guy who'd written it had gone through it all and he was a comedy writer. So he'd written this really splendid comedy and it's called Prostrate, not Prostate, Prostrate. And I was in that and I loved it, but I was the one at the end of it who had to say, Playing the role of da -da -da, with Gary Wilmot. No, no, no. This was a da -da 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 for BBC Radio 4. And as I said that, it suddenly, you know, there I am on Radio 4 announcing. <laughs> when I left school, I could barely read and write. And there I was on Radio 4 announcing um, for BBC Radio 4. And it just, it was a really lovely feeling I got. You know, of all the things I've done, those few words, just, I just thought, oh, well, there you are. My dad and mum will be. My dad came over here on the Windrush all those years ago. I didn't think he'd ever believe that his son would be on, on BBC Radio 4. <laughs> Gary, it's, it's beautiful, you know, beautiful story. Yeah, they'd be so proud. He'd be so proud. Um, oh, I can, yeah, I can goosebumps. You know, I, I can feel your, your emotion. Um, there is so much more we could talk about. I would like you very much to open uh, a Gary Wilmot drama school, performing <laughs> arts... I think I think we we need that. So if you could maybe just give that a thought. I've given thought in the past, but it's a question of time. I would love to. I, you see, I'm not really good at things unless I can be involved. I could start a school and get people to run it for me, but unless I could be actually involved, um, so I'm always a little bit reluctant to do that. But uh, yeah. Come on, Gary! Please <laughs> make it happen. Just need to like clone you or something. We're here. Um, we're on, we're, we are actually on this earth to teach. That's what we're here for. And uh, so that might be something. Um, I did want to talk to you more about um, The Grinch, but we are running out of time. But best of luck with that. I can't wait to see you in it. Is that something that you love, you know, doing telly and, and film and, you know, different mediums where you can? Yeah, I'd like to do more telly. Um, I, I learned a lot over about 10, 15 years of doing it. I mean, in the 80s, I was never off the television and into the 90s. I was there all the time. Um, 
uh, and, uh, you know, you should never judge somebody by the number of, you know, overexposure by the number of times you appear in front of an audience. You judge it on the quality of your work. And I've tried to maintain the quality uh, over all these years, but I could really do with some television now. Um, but it doesn't work. Television doesn't work the same the way it used to work. You know, whereas I said on New Faces, you went on 18 million people saw you and suddenly you were you, you were desired, you wanted. Um, now, of course, it's just an, you need to be in a lot of them or one that strictly even. But even Strictly, I can't remember who was on Strictly last year. So, you know, even that has a limited, a limited exposure, really. So, but I'm happy doing what I'm doing, the way I'm doing it. So. No, I, I sense that. But, you know, Strictly 2021, who knows? <laughs> Sweet Lorraine, well, the lead. Yeah. <laughs> um, lots of exciting things bubbling away. Gary, my final two questions to you are, how do you relax? And who has been your biggest influence? Um, I relax, I write, that's how I relax, because I don't write for money. I write because I, I enjoy it and I, I want an end product. I write short stories, monologues, all that sort of thing. And I really enjoy that process. Um, I couldn't do it without a computer and word uh, spell check. Um, I, I write something, then I get the computer to read it back to me to check I've got all the, all the work letters in the right uh, order. Um, so I write, I walk the dog, I do a bit of DIY. Um, that's about it, really. Um, you know, it, it, the, the funny thing about what I do and the way I do it is my brain is going all the time. So it's difficult to switch off. Mm -hmm. um, as far as influences, um, there's no one person in this industry that has influenced me. It's lots. I've gleaned lots of bits and pieces, like from from Henry, Henry Lewis, the, the musical director of Carmen Jones, working with Mike Cochrane, you know, set certain standards that I still use today. Um, so, and even the resident directors on that, Lisa Kent and Nigel, uh, they, they are, um, they're so, so, so good at what their job. They were so good at their job. And um, that, you know, you glean little bits of them. Uh, when I work with other performers, I go, well, that's good. I like the way they did that. Or I don't like the way they do that. So I'm going to do it differently when I do it. But um, it's, um, yeah, it's, it, it, yeah, Nigel West and, and Lisa Kent, I think, are probably two big influences on my on, on my life because uh, I, I still use the things that they taught me and me and my girl all those years ago. There is one man, there is one man uh, who, uh, who I admired so much, and that's Bob Monkhouse. Uh, and I knew him slightly, not as, as well as others uh, uh, did, but um, he, it, the way he went about his work on television, he always came across as a little bit, a little bit kind of over, a little bit smarmy, a little bit over the top. Um, but in real life, he, he was exactly the same. And that was sincere, absolutely sincere. He was an extraordinary man. That was actor, singer, comedian, director and writer Gary Wilmot, MBE. Don't forget to subscribe to future episodes from your preferred podcast provider and follow me on Twitter at Shireen Jordan and on Instagram at Shireen R. Jordan.